the Tennis Gambling Podcast and the Sports Gambling Podcast are now presented by our Patreon. Score exclusive perks, content, and contests, including our NFL win totals contest with a $1,000 prize. Join today at sportsgamblepodcast.com slash Patreon. We're also brought to you by GameTime. Download the GameTime app to get last-minute tickets at the lowest price guaranteed. Use promo code SGPN for $20 off. We're also brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. Download the app now and use code DGEN. New customers can score $200 in bonus bets instantly when they bet just $5 on any college football action. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code DGEN. Welcome, everybody, to the Tennis Gambling Podcast here on the Sports Gambling Podcast Network. It is currently Monday morning, early Monday morning, August 21st. And I'm your host, as always, Scott Reichel, once again, going solo for this pod. Should be a fun episode, maybe a bit of a longer one, because we do have to preview the tournament in Winston-Salem, which should be fun. But I know that most tournament preview episodes are probably going to be longer because of the fact that Winston-Salem, at the moment, does not have quarter odds up. So that kind of takes away some of our analysis. And it's also a very unpredictable event based on the schedule because it is the final event right before the U.S. Open. So as a result, a lot of the star power who just played the two Masters 1000 events are not playing this event and they are simply recovering for the U.S. Open. So usually this event becomes an absolute circus where anybody can win. So if you do want to look for some long shots to win on hardcore, this is probably your tournament. And I'm going to go through some of the past results and you'll see what I'm talking about. But it should be fun, usually an entertaining tournament. But once again, the level of talent at this event is a sharp, I'd say, decline from the previous uh, tournaments that we just had in Cincinnati and in Toronto, etc., it's a 250 that, once again, most players, star players, are going to skip, but still going to be fun to follow, and it is the last action that we have on ATP hardcourts before the U.S. Open. So anyway, uh, time to actually get into the uh, tournament itself, but before we do that, got to address the elephant in the room, which is the recap of the final in Cincinnati and the final, we're going to talk about in a second, but let me just talk about the actual lock and dog picks. Starting off with the lock and dog picks, ended up winning with the lock, had Djokovic money line at minus 160, which got there. I believe it closed to 175. You could have gotten a much better line in play, but Djokovic got over the finish line. And then for the dog, ended up losing. We had Djokovic minus one and a half games in the first set at even money. And Djokovic was actually up a break in the first set, but then he was struggling with his... Uh, I'd say conditioning because of the overall heat and the weather in Cincinnati. And Djokovic was kind of battling a borderline heat stroke there. And he ended up, of course, coming back to win the match. But for the first set, he was up 4-2 in the first set. So it looks pretty good. But then Djokovic kind of fell apart from there. And he ended up losing the first set 7-5. So he took the split there. Lost some money on the juice, but still is what it is. And we ended up winning the lock. But a reminder, we did automatically win the outright for that match because we had Alcaraz and Djokovic to win the tournament. So that ended up working itself out. So definitely happy with how the tournament played out. And if you were following the lock and dog picks all tournament long, you made a lot of money. I don't usually like to self-promote, but we kind of crushed the tournament the entire time. And it feels nice to end the tournament on a high note, getting Djokovic across the finish line at minus 160. That's the unbiased and that is the true analysis that tells you absolutely nothing about the match and the quality itself. That was the, I can't even say like the spark notes version of it, but that was the brief way of summarizing the match if you did not watch it. So 
I'm going to tell you right now, if you did not see this match, I recommend trying to find it online, and I recommend watching the entire thing, because it was, by no exaggeration, and no hyperbole, one of the greatest three-set matches ever played. And I feel like this is worth a discussion, and I'm going to briefly get into it. So most of the people listening to this podcast probably saw some of it, minimum. Maybe you saw all of it. Then again, it was a tournament t- uh, match that started at around 4.30 in the afternoon on a Sunday, so I'm aware most people, scheduling-wise, may or may not have been busy. Having said that, you assume most hardcore matches out of three sets probably take a ceiling of maybe like two hours and 40, maybe three hours, because we know clay events can take a lot longer because each individual point takes longer since it's harder to actually hit the ball past people, and you tend to see a lot of longer rallies because of it. For hard courts, you tend to see somewhere in the middle. It's not as slow as... It's not, of course, going to be shorter points than grass. Grass is always going to be the shortest level of shots per point. But hard court is usually, once again, a type of surface where you see a smaller number of shots than clay just because of the fact that it's a lot easier to hit the ball past people because the ball is traveling a lot faster on hard court. But once again, you're usually looking at the three hour benchmark being an extremely long three set match on hard court. Then Alcaraz and Djokovic showed up and played three hours and 49 minutes in 90 degree weather in Cincinnati. And that is a good starting point for the sake of this match. Now, I mentioned how Djokovic had the first set in a stranglehold and then kind of fell apart there and lost uh, the last couple of games in that set. He was up 4-2, which means he did end up losing five of the last six games in the first set. And Djokovic was getting some medical timeout and treatments as he was kind of grabbing at his head, and it seemed like he was having classic dehydration symptoms and potentially a heat stroke, but I think that might be a bit of of an exaggeration. Let's call it extreme dehydration. So Djokovic looked like he was going to be down and out, and then Djokovic had a couple of break points in the second set as sorry let me just uh quickly see the exact breakdown here so Djokovic had a couple of break points that he had to fight off at 1-1 and Alcaraz broke him he fought off the first one did not fight off the second one Alcaraz ended up going up a break then Djokovic had a break point opportunity to get back on serve did not convert Alcaraz was up 3-1 they kept holding and it was 4-2 and you assumed that Djokovic was probably done because Djokovic physically was looking better in the second set, but he was still definitely not looking like he was up to Alcaraz's level. And you kind of just assume the match would be over in about 30 minutes after that. Maybe Alcaraz would win in straight sets. And then Djokovic did Djokovic things, and he completely turned the tide in the entire match, and he gained a second win, so to speak, that propelled him throughout the rest of the second set and the third set. So in the second set, he was down 4-2, as I said before, ended up holding serve to get to 3-4. Then he broke back to make it 4-4, and then you had an absolute war of a tiebreaker in the second set where Alcaraz did have a match point. Djokovic fought it off with a very nice forehand down the line, and then he eventually ended up getting the set after converting his second set point. So Djokovic went from down and out to forcing a third set in the span of about 30 minutes. And then Djokovic, you could tell, was feeling himself a little bit. And you assumed that Djokovic would be able to maybe get a, I don't want to say an easy victory in the third set, but you can tell that Alcaraz was starting to struggle a bit more and Djokovic had all the momentum. And Djokovic did have a couple of break points early on in the third set at 2-2. He did not convert those, but if he did, you assume the match was over. Alcaraz fought those off. 
ended up holding. Then Djokovic had five break points at 3-3, and he finally converted on the fifth one to go up a break. Then Alcaraz was once again down 3-5, and Djokovic had two more break points. It seemed like Alcaraz had given his best effort, and he was running out of gas, and as a result, you thought Djokovic was about to win. But not so fast. Alcaraz ended up fighting off those two break points, and he ended up forcing Djokovic to serve it out. Then you had two of the best games that you've probably seen all year, with the exception of maybe the Wimbledon mat, uh, the Wimbledon game, uh, where he, that took about 25 minutes between the two of them. But the 5-4 game for Djokovic was an all-time game for this year, as Alcaraz ended up leading 15-40 for two breakpoint chances to get back on serve. Djokovic fought those off, had a match point. Alcaraz fought that off. Alcaraz had another breakpoint. Djokovic fought it off. Djokovic had a match point again, could not convert, and then Alcaraz broke him at uh, advantage with a missed overhead slam by Djokovic after some, some crazy defense by Alcaraz. But once again, that was an insane game in itself. And Alcaraz was able to break back to force once again Djokovic to actually take it from him. You thought that Alcaraz was going to roll over maybe when Djokovic had his four match points and he did not. Alcaraz fought him off and then you thought, okay, maybe Djokovic is going to run out of gas and Alcaraz is going to take it. Then Alcaraz got into trouble because Djokovic now had 1540 with two break points. Alcaraz fought those off. Djokovic had another break point. And Alcaraz fought that off. Then Djokovic had his fourth break point of the game. Alcaraz fought those off and eventually held. So Alcaraz went from down 3-5 to up 6-5, fighting off a bunch of break point chances, six in those games. And he fought off a couple of championship points in the process when Djokovic was serving. Djokovic got back on track, though. They went to a tiebreaker. Alcaraz's hand was completely cramping up in the breaker and eventually Djokovic ended up outlasting Alcaraz as he won 7-4 in the breaker. Now, once again, if you ended up watching the match, I told you what you already knew, but it is a little bit different when you witness it in person and then you read the box score, the play-by-play. When you realize how nuts the final couple of games were in that match, and Djokovic was able to outlast the number one player in the world. So, once again, it is probably... No hyperbole, the greatest three-set match I've ever seen. You can make an argument that maybe uh, the Madrid match between uh, Djokovic and Nadal could top it. Uh, That was, I believe, from 2000, and I want to say nine, which was around four hours. Then again, I mentioned before, you tend to get longer matches on clay compared to hard court. But a borderline four-hour three-set match on hard court is kind of unheard of. And I wanted to at least mention it because three hours and 49 minutes in those conditions is nuts. And Djokovic just proved once again why he's the greatest of all time, just simply put. Now, of course, we're all hoping that we get a five-set rematch in the U.S. Open in a couple of weeks between Alcaraz and Djokovic. But I also feel like, once again, it was one of those matches where I can't say that anybody truly blew it or deserved to lose, but unfortunately in the sport, somebody had to lose, and both players would have beaten anybody else on tour easily if they played that level, except each other, and that resulted in, once again, an all-time classic, and I do think when you're looking at, once again, the all-time three-setters that can compete with this one, Djokovic Nadal in Madrid uh, 2009 is the first one people are going to pick, 
because that was basically a four-hour match in a three-set affair, but that was on clay once again, which Nadal eventually won. It's also weird that was kind of a that was a semi because that you always think of that being the final, but it wasn't. So this match was officially the longest Masters 1000 final of all time. And Djokovic, at the age of 36, was able to overcome some serious dehydration, a potential choke late, and a couple of insane match point saves and break point saves by Alcaraz in order to eventually win the tournament. And then Djokovic had a very fun and signature shirt ripping, which we have not seen in a while. So it was nice to see that kind of a throwback to his five-set marathon win in the Aussie Open final against Nadal way back in the day where he completely ripped his shirt and everyone was completely exhausted from that match. But the point is, if you did not see that match, you missed out. Just simply put, if you can end up watching part of the match and you can't watch the whole thing, turn it on from 5-3 Djokovic in the third set. It's all you got to do. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy that 30-40 minute masterclass because that was all-time tennis. And it is great knowing that even though Federer retired and even though Nadal is currently battling some serious injuries, Djokovic is still holding his own and Alcaraz is the real deal. And the fact that they can go at it three times competitively Two and a half, if you want to say the French Open one was kind of a half because you had an injury that happened that kind of ruined the entire thing. But they went from never playing against each other to having three phenomenal matches or two and a half phenomenal matches in the span of a couple of months. And it has been much-watch television. It's incredible stuff. And once again, I think that might actually be the greatest three-set match of all time. I think it's in the discussion. So once again, even if you watched it, I might want to watch it again. I'd recommend doing it because that was an all-time just overall clash. And that's something that you're you're going to have a hard time topping out of a three-setter. But anyway, wanted to mention that for the sake of the picks, though, once again, ended up splitting. And we had a great tournament in general. So hopefully we'll keep it rolling here in Winston-Salem. Moving on to the preview, the whole purpose of this tournament. Unfortunately, both Djokovic and Alcaraz are not going to be here. Uh, as you, they probably both need serious amounts of oxygen from the oxygen tanks and a lot of recovery time for the U.S. Open. But still, seriously, time to get into some of the historical winners. And you'll know what I'm talking about when I say it is a pretty weak list of champions. So last year, Manorino won, beating Dejir. 2021, Ivashka won against Emer. You had Hercatch winning in 2019 against Benoit Pair. That was her catch when he was pretty good, but 2019 was before he kind of made a jump to the top 20 and top 10. So he was kind of an unknown, or he was a young player that was making some strides, but that was before he had his official come up. Same in 2018 with Medvedev, who won after beating Steve Johnson. That was before Medvedev became a top 10 player in the world, so he was still a young player that was a bit unknown. Uh, Batista Agut won in 2017 against Zoomer. He had Busta winning against Agut in 2016. Anderson won in 2015 against uh, P.H. Herbert. You ended up having Rosal beating Jersey Janowitz. Shout out to him, name from the past. In 2014, you had Melser beating Munfi in 2013. Isner won it back-to-back years in 2011 and 2012 against Burdich and Benetau. You had Stakovsky beating Istamin. You get my point. There's been a lot of names that you might have forgotten or guys that were never really top 20, and yet they ended up winning a title because it is a pretty weak field. So keep that in mind, and that is why the odds are kind of all over the place in terms of the favorites for the sake of this match or for the, uh, for the sake of this event. So Korda is the favorite at plus 750. 
Does he know there's going to be chaos when the favorite in the event is plus 750? So Chorich is plus 800. Greek Spores 12 to 1. Nakashima's 12 to 1. He had a war in his match against Kubler, which he won in the third set breaker. Laheshka is 14 to 1. Phils is 15 to 1. Draper 16 to 1. Rusevori 16 to 1. Giron is 20 to 1. Vukic is 20 to 1. Fuksovic is 22 to 1. Team is 22 to 1. Zanshulp is 22 to 1. Hallis is 25 to 1. Purcell is 25 to 1. Zhang is 28 to 1. Uh, Baez is 30 to 1. Hoffman's 30 to 1. Mickelson, you might have remembered him from his run in Newport. He's 30 to 1 as well. I can keep going, but the point is there's a lot of names here that have a shot to win because the favorite to win the event is plus 750. So you're expecting absolute carnage. Now, I will recap briefly some of the matches from Sunday, not from takeaway perspectives, but just to read off some of the results here. Uh, Hussor won in two and a half sets as Shevchenko ran out of gas and Hussor got the job done via retirement. Zhang ended up beating Avashka, so one former champion is eliminated. J.M. Sarundalo ended up beating Safulin, which was a bit of a shock there, but nice win by Sarundalo. Bonzi beat Moore in straight sets. Galan beat Albert in straight sets. Mickelson beat Varius, our boy from the podcast, in three sets, including a bagel in the third set. And Nakashima, I mentioned a second ago, beat Kubler in three uh, with a tiebreaker 7-3 scoreline in the final set. So not the craziest amount of action, but it tells you once again how weak the field's going to be. Now, to go through the draw, I'm going to start off with Korda and work my way down here because there's a lot of names that you can pick from. And once again, a bunch of people can win this event. Usually with Cincinnati, the Masters 1000 events, I mentioned it before, you tend to see the same couple of guys make deep runs every year, and one of the main guys wins. Toronto is kind of an exception because you had a bunch of Cinderella's, but Sinner ended up winning, and Sinner was one of the shorter favorites. He wasn't Alcaraz or Djokovic, but he was, or Medvedev, but he was the fourth or fifth option to win the event. Then, of course, in uh, that was in Toronto and Cincinnati, you had Alcaraz and Djokovic, the two favorites, who went at it in the final, but... For this match, for this tournament, you actually might have like 15 to 20 people that have a shot to win, which is kind of insane. So once again, it might be tricky to find the right guy to pick. But if you do, you might find yourself looking at a very large ticket. And that couldn't be a lot of fun. That could. So keep an eye out for it. But uh, Korda has a buy in the first round. Then he's facing off against Bonzi. Then he's facing off against either Fuksovics or Zhang. Not exactly the easiest path for Korda. And Korda also has been playing some really bad tennis ever since he called himself one of the favorites at Wimbledon. I don't want to say he jinxed himself, but he's been brutal ever since he made those comments and then followed it up by embarrassing himself by losing to Vesely in the first round of Wimbledon. But on hard court so far, he lost to Shevchenko in three in Washington. He beat uh, Echeverry on hard court in Toronto. Doesn't mean much. Echeverry is not a, hard, a good hardcore player at all. Lost to Vukic in three in Toronto and then ended up losing to Chorich in two in Cincinnati. So simply put, I think that his path is actually pretty difficult because we've seen Korda get upset by guys weaker than him. And you're looking at that path once again. Bonzi's not a slouch. Zhang and Fuksovic should be fun, but either guy could maybe beat Korda too. I'm not taking Korda at plus 750. I have no faith in him at all. Now, if he wins the event, would I be shocked? Not really, because Korda's still a solid player with upside. But based on reason form, I'm not, I'm not taking him at 750. Like You have to at least be above 500 post-Wimbledon on hard courts, and Korda's won a total of one hard court match. So I'm not going to take Korda. Uh, I think that that quarter is a bit tough in general. So I do think, once again, you're looking at what could be 
an upset early on for Corda, or I should say against him, as Corda might lose early. So I'm going to pass on Corda. If he makes a deep run, it is what it is, but I can't trust him based on current form. So skipping him. Now moving on to Chorich. Now Chorich, I thought, might have a decent run in Cincinnati. Then he lost in a war to her catch. Solid match, respectable loss is what it is. But Chorich was playing some... Better tennis recently in the Hopman Cup. He almost beat Alcaraz. It was on clay, but still. And then he also, once again, had a good showing against Corda in Cincinnati before losing to Hercatch. But Hercatch had a shot to beat Alcaraz. So once again, George played pretty well. He has, unlike Corda, a pretty decent draw. He's got a buy in the first round, then either Hitchikata or Marchenko. Let's assume George wins. Then either Giron or probably Momo. So I'm assuming Chorich should have a pretty decent path into the quarterfinals. Giron is definitely not a slouch. We saw him beat Rune, for example, on hard court a couple weeks ago. But I do think Chorich is the favorite in that match. And once again, when you're comparing the pathways for the two favorites here, Chorich definitely has the easier path. So I think that he's definitely the favorite I would consider a lot more than Korda. And assuming that he gets past Giron and he's in the quarters, then he's probably looking at... I mean, like Hoffman or maybe Zanschulp, who hasn't played much tennis lately. Like, I just think that you're looking at a pretty good path for George to make the semis. Then at the semis, he'll probably face off against, uh, once again, maybe Dejir. So maybe Mickelson, if he can make a run, Vukic maybe. But it's a pretty good draw for George. Like, I got to point it out. He's, he's, he's going to be favored in pretty much every match here. So I think that, once again, if I had to pick a favorite here, Chorich is worthy at 8-1 to one because his path is definitely one that can be very light, and it could be even lighter if a couple of other players get upset, which is definitely a possibility. But Chorich might be favored in every match leading up to the final, and with that being the case, I'm always going to be tempted to take the 8-1 to one shot if when that's going to be the potential pathway for the player. So give me Chorich at 8-1. to one. I just think that, once again, he has the ability to win these events because we saw him win in Cincinnati last year in a bit of a shocking way. But still, the point is he showed off a great forehand, a good serve, and he proved to all of us that when his game is on, he's easily a top 15 player in the world. Now, George has an issue of constantly reaching that point, and he does have some unforced error issues on the forehand side. But once again, with the path I just laid out, it's a pretty nice draw and I'm going to take him at 8-1. to one. Now, Greek Spore is interesting as well, because Greek Spore already has two ATP titles this year, and he made the final a couple of weeks ago before losing to Evans in Washington. So he has been no stranger to making deep runs here. And to go through his path on the other side of the bracket, it's not that easy, because he's in the same section as Draper, who has not played much tennis, but we know Draper's a good hardcore player. And then you might have a really fun second-round match here between Rusevori and Purcell, and both those guys have been playing good tennis. Purcell especially was great last week in Cincinnati, and he almost beat Alcaraz. But I do think that even though Greek Sport is a player that I would not be shocked if he ended up winning the event, the fact that he's facing off against Draper, followed by Rusevori or Purcell immediately after the bye, I think once again that tells you how difficult his path actually is and why I think I have to skip on Greek Sport. Now, if he wins the event, would I be shocked? No. But once again, with that level of difficulty in the first two rounds or first two matches compared to what I said for Chorich, I don't think I can take Greek Spore. I just think that matchup's a bit too difficult against the likes of Draper, who if, if Draper's on, you could argue that's a 50-50 match. And then with Purcell's recent form or with Rusevori's recent form, reminder, he ended up beating Rublev in his uh, last tournament. I think it's going to be difficult. So Greek Spore, 
I respect as a player. I think he's very good. I think he's one of the most underrated players on tour, but I don't like his path. So I'm going to skip him at 12 to 1. Nakashima, I'm telling you right now, I don't care what his path is. I'm not taking him. Uh, he went to three sets against Kublor in the first round, so he doesn't even have a bye. And you're looking at his pathway and even just the his overall year. It, he has not been good enough. And he's facing off against Phil's, a rematch of that uh, clay final that they had a couple of uh, months ago at this point. Or was that the semifinal matchup? That might have been the semifinal matchup. I don't remember. But the point is, they had a pretty long three-set war uh, a couple of months ago, uh, which Phil's ended up winning. But still, I believe that was actually the semi because I think he ended up beating Sarundalo in the final. But anyway, point is, they did have a war in the past this year, but Nakashima going three sets in the first round against Kubler and now facing off against Phil's off a bye. Not a great spot there. Nakashima, I'm passing on. I'm not going to spend much time on it. I think he's just too much of a head case. Then you get into a guy who I like as a player. Unfortunately, uh, some of us might have PTSD from him from earlier this year when he blew a massive lead against Murray. I believe it was 40-love, 5-4, and he choked it. You know what I'm talking about. It's Laheshka. And I got to bring him up because I do think he has a good path, too. And I mentioned a second ago how Greek Spore is the favorite in the bottom half. Yet his path is early on is pretty difficult with Draper and Rusevori or Purcell. Laheshka is in that bottom section. His uh, his section is a lot easier than Greek sports. So Laheshka has a bye in the first round. Then he's facing off against Kotov or Kruger, which I think Laheshka should win. Then a matchup against either Kempfer, uh, Listien, or Altmaier. Altmaier, we know, is more of a clay court guy. Uh, Listien is a guy who doesn't exactly have much firepower, but he keeps the ball in play. And Kepfer had a solid run in Washington, but in general, he is known for being more of a challenger-level player. The point is, Laheshka should be a decent favorite in those matches, and then he'd face off against the scraps of Rusevori, Purcell, Draper, or Greekspor. So once again, his path is not bad, because those four guys I just mentioned are going to kill each other in their own section, and then the winner of that faces off against Laheshka. It's a pretty nice draw and spot for Laheshka, so I do think you're looking at a spot where he can make some noise. Now, Korda, I mentioned before, might find some difficulty in his section. Maybe Phils can make a run. We saw him make a relatively deep run in a hardcore event earlier this year uh, before he eventually lost to, I believe it was Bonzi, I think. But the point is, we've seen Phils make some runs here, but he has looked more comfortable on clay than on hardcore. Um, on clay than hardcore. So I do think, once again, Phils can maybe be worth consideration. Uh, but I do think if I had to pick somebody from the bottom half that I think has some value, I think Laheshka does at 14 to 1. And Phils at 15 to 1. So once again, you're looking at guys that are pretty close. Laheshka's 14 to 1. Phils is 15 to 1. Draper 16 to 1. And Rusevori at 16 to 1. So. They're, once again, a bunch of guys who have a lot of upside in their half, and yet they're around the same price. But the fact that Draper and Rusevori have to play against each other and then against Greek Spore, and they're roughly like one or 200 below Laheshka, those odds feel a little bit off because of the path. I think Laheshka's odds should be lower because of his uh, path, uh, I'd say, weak is the weakness of his path compared to the other guys near him in terms of price. I think Laheshka should be cheaper than Nakashima, personally. I think it should be closer to Greek Spore's odds at around 12 to 1. But give me Laheshka. I do think, even though he burned us earlier this year, he's still a solid player in general. And I do think that he's in line to put together a good showing here. So give me Laheshka 
at around 14 to 1 as my second choice. Now, moving on to other guys that I'm tempted by since I kind of just grouped the others together. Uh, moving forward, I'll mention like Giron and Vukic. Giron, I'm probably going to pass on because he would have to face off against Chorich somewhat early in this event. And Giron does have a bye, but he should end up beating Momo. So he's a decent first match. Mo can always be tricky, though. So Giron can maybe lose that one, but I doubt it. I just think facing off against Chorch in the second round is a bit difficult. I guess the argument is, once again, that... Or I should say the third round, because technically he has a bye in the first round. But I, if you're looking at, once again, how easy Chorch's path is, if you think Giron can beat Chorch, maybe it's worth a flyer, because at plus 2,000, you'd be inheriting an easy draw if you pull off the upset. So that is something that's worth considering, I don't think Giron's going to win the tournament, so that's also kind of what's holding me back here. Vukic is interesting, because Vukic did make a final in uh, an event a couple of uh, weeks ago where he ended up losing to Fritz in a war, but Vukic has proven he can make some noise if he's underestimated, does have a bye in the first round. He actually does have a pretty decent path here. He's kind of in the middle of the bracket. He faces off against either Van Ash or Kwiatowski, and Vukic should be able to beat both those guys. Then he'll face off against either Golan or Baez. I'm assuming Golan, because Baez is not a great hardcore player. He's okay, but Golan's been playing a lot of hardcore tennis lately, so I do think he might be in line to win that one. And he also played in the first round against Albert, so he should be more accustomed to the courts here. But Golan really does not have a good serve. And I do think Vukic can be in line to beat him. Golan might be worth a look maybe as a sleeper, but that's a separate point. Point is, Vukic, if he ends up beating Van Ash or Kwiatowski, which he should, and then Golan, he's looking at probably Dejir or maybe Hallis or uh, Mickelson in his next match. But that's not an easy section either. Like Those guys can kill each other, and maybe Vukic can take advantage of a guy that might be a bit exhausted in that uh, little section there. And then you're probably going to end up looking at what would be a matchup against uh, Chorich uh, in the semis. So once again, I'm kind of staying with the top half because I do think that if you can find a way to get into the quarters, it's really going to be up in the air. And Chorich will be favored in that match if I had to guess. But I do think that Vukic is pretty live to get the job done. And I just mentioned the overall path is not bad. Plus 2,000. I'm kind of intrigued by it because we saw that he was able to make a deep run in a hardcore ATP event earlier in the summer. And I do think that his serve can play very well here. So give me Vukic at plus 2000. I am pretty tempted by that. As for anything else, I might throw in a couple of maybe serious long shots, but I think I'm going to stay with those guys as my main selections. There are a couple of players that I like in general, but I really don't know if I can trust them in this event. Fuksovic, I like as a player, but he's had some injury issues in the past, and I haven't really seen him play much tennis lately, so I don't think I can take him. You're looking at team who had a good run on clay in Kitzbühel. Now he's going back to hard court. I have to see it to believe it, but I don't think team's going to win an event anytime soon, so I'm going to pass on team. Hallis, I like as a player, so maybe he can make some noise, but I just mentioned the Vukic uh, potential path and how Hallis's section is not the easiest, so I'm going to skip him. Purcell's interesting, but once again, he's in the bottom section with Draper, etc., which is not going to be easy, so I think I'm going to skip him. Zhang is interesting at 28-1, to 1, who's also had a really good year, and I feel like people aren't exactly talking about it. The problem is he's facing off against Fuksovics in his next match after going three sets against Avashka, so fatigue could be a bit of an issue, and once again, he'd have to face off against Fuksovics and then probably Korda. 
Not a fun spot there for Zhang, so I'm going to skip him. Who else do I want to consider? Golan, I mentioned, at 35-1. to 1. I'm not sure his serve's good enough, but he's actually been playing some good tennis lately. Golan has. I, I might be able to be tempted into taking him. Uh, let me just look at the path for Golan once again. I know I just mentioned it a second ago, but looking at his path, he's against Baez in the first round. Uh, Baez has not played really any hardcore matches in a while. Uh, going through the head-to-head between them, they've played twice. They played on clay twice, and they've split. So that doesn't tell me anything. But Golan, I think, is more comfortable on hardcore. So assuming he gets by Baez, then again, that's the first round. So like, do I really want a coin flippish match in the first round and then maybe a matchup against Vukic in the... Uh, next match after that, not really. Uh, so I think I'm going to actually pass on. I think I'm going to pass on Golan here. Husor is a head case, but I actually think his serve and I actually think his serve and volley can play well here. So uh, do I want to make a case for Husor? I know I'm going to sound nuts because Husor has been terrible for the last couple of months. Finally got a win though uh, in his match yesterday. But let me look at Husor's draw for a second. Face off against Gasquet which I think he should win. Gasquet has not been playing good tennis. Then Phils or Nakashima, which I think Husor is going to be probably an underdog too, either way, so probably not going to pick him either. Then again, I'm looking at some of these names, and it's just like Bonzi's at 90-1. to 1. Like, Can I see Bonzi winning? Maybe. 90-1, to 1, though. Like, I think Bonzi's a pretty decent player, and he won a hardcore event earlier this year. So that might be worth considering if I want to go for a super long shot, but I mentioned the path for Bonzi before facing off against Korda in his first match, followed by uh, Fuksovics and Zhang. Definitely not fun. So I think I'm going to pass, but plus 9,000 is plus 9,000. Um, I feel like I do need to pick a long shot of some kind. And I think for this one, I'm going to go with a guy that I actually have not mentioned up to this point, but he was playing very good tennis on clay, made the final in Hamburg. I think I'm going to take Dejir. I think that he's got a pretty good price here at around uh, plus 4,000, especially since he was the runner-up last year. You might remember he ended up losing to Manorino. He had some unforced error issues, kind of fell apart midway through the match. But the defending runner-up at plus 4,000, and he was playing good tennis. It wasn't like he was struggling. The fact that, once again, he has not played much hardcore tennis lately is a bit concerning. But plus 4,000 for a guy that made it a deep run here last year and maybe has some unfinished business and he lost in three sets to Kokonakis in Cincinnati. It was a close match, whatever. But the point is, I think there's value at plus 4,000. To go through the draw, face off against probably Hallis in his first match. Not easy. I'll concede that. Then either Mickelson or Offner. Uh, Mickelson's a bit of an unknown because he's still a youngster, but I think Dejir should be able to beat him in that one. It really comes down to Dejir's forehand, which is a very solid stroke that he has. And if it's on... He can beat anybody in this field, but you're looking at, once again, his path. They might have to face off against Vukic in the quarterfinals, then maybe Chorich. But plus 4,000 for the runner-up from last year, I think, is a great price in what's a very open field. So once again, I think before I wrap it up, my final long-shot pick will be Dejir at plus 4,000. So once again, my outright picks for Winston-Salem in what should be a chaotic tournament. I'm going to go with Chorich at 8-1. to one. I'm going to go with Laheshka. At 14 to 1, I'm going to go with Vukic at 20 to 1, and I am going to go with uh, Dejir at 40 to 1. And those are going to be my uh, outright picks. For example, there's no way Dejir 
based on his form last year and his form on clay, should be the same odds as Juan Manuel Serundolo on a hard court to win the event. Like That's what I'm talking about. These odds are nuts. Uh, Dejir feels mispriced. I'd put him at around like 20 to 1 if I had to do it myself. But 40 to 1, I think, has value. I'm going to take that. But that's going to wrap it up for the actual outrights for Winston-Salem. Now it's time for the lock and dog picks. But before we get into any of that, can I have a quick word from our sponsor. You've waited all year, and the time has finally arrived. College football is back, and so are the traditions, the tailgates, and the great offers from DraftKings Sportsbook. Right now, new customers can score $200 in bonus bets instantly when they bet just $5 on any college football bet. Looking at the first slate of college football, I am pretty tempted by Jacksonville State, plus the one and a half against UTEP. UTEP was a decent team last year, five and seven, but they only won one road game the entire year. Jacksonville State, though, did just get promoted from the uh, CS to the FBS, and it is a little bit interesting that they are only getting one and a half as the newly promoted team. So it does seem a little bit of a sketchy line there, a bit trappy. I think Jacksonville State's pretty live to get the job done at home. But kick off the season with DraftKings Sportsbook. Download the app now and use code DJ. New customers can score $200 in bonus bets instantly when they bet just $5 on any college football bet. Only on drafting sportsbook with code DGEN. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. In New York, call 877 8 Hope NY or text Hope NY 467 369. In West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net in partnership with Hollywood Casino at Charlestown Races. All games regulated by the West Virginia Lottery. Please play responsibly. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, 21 plus in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details and state-specific responsible gambling resources. Bonus bets expire seven days after they are issued to you. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Terms at sportsbook.draftkings.com slash football. Ball terms. We're also brought to you by Game Time. I don't know about all of you, but I like to attend a lot of sporting events and concerts in person. And let me tell you right now, the way that it's currently done to buy tickets is way too stressful. And there's a much easier alternative if you use the Game Time app. Game Time is great for buying tickets to your favorite events in a non-stressful way. And Game Time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all of your sports, music, comedy, and theaters near you. They also have some great uh, deals and promos on game time. They have flash deals for last minute tickets. They also have one of my favorite features, which is images of seat views. It's definitely annoying. We've all been there before when we buy what we think is going to be a good ticket, and then suddenly you get there and your view is obstructed. Well, with this feature, you can tell what the view is going to look like if you do purchase that ticket. So the point is you do know what you're expecting and what view you should be getting if you end up wanting to find that out before you spend your hard-earned cash. Plus, they also have the lowest price guarantee, event cancellation protection, job loss protection, etc. Game time is the place for last-minute ticket deals, and if you don't want to plan months in advance and you want to just go to something at the last minute in a pretty spontaneous way, game time is deals on tickets right up to the day of the event. Get exclusive flash deals on tickets for football, basketball, baseball, concerts, comedy, theater, and more. The game time guarantee means that you'll always get the best price if you find tickets in the same section and row for less. Game time will credit you 110% of the difference. Snag the tickets without the stress with game time. Download the game time app, create an account, and use code SGPN for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code SGPN for $20 off. Download game time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price 
guaranteed. We're also brought to you by the SGP Patreon. Make sure you check out our Patreon. Sign up for the Patreon to get access to exclusive contests, including the NFL win totals contest with a $1,000 first place prize. The guys just recorded their first sports gambling podcast stories podcast just for patrons chronicling the birth of the network, the sports game podcast network. That is there's even a discord channel just for patrons. The sports game podcast has, and always will give out all their picks for free. The Patreon is a great way to support the network and fight back against corporate gambling sports slash Patreon, the sports game slash Patreon. We're also brought to you by underdog fantasy. The NFL season is right around the corner and underdog NFL pick is a great way to get down on your favorite over under picks. They even have college football and NFL preseason action. And of course, make sure to enter Best Ball Mania 4, where first place gets $3 million. Head over to underdogfantasy.com and use the promo code SGPN for a 100% deposit bonus up to $100. Underdogfantasy.com, promo code SGPN. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tennis Gambling Podcast. Just finished previewing the tournament in Winston-Salem. Now it's time to get into the lock and dog picks for the show. Starting off with the lock, I am going to go to a matchup between Halas and Acosta Diaz. And for this one, I am going to go with Halas to win in straight sets, or I should say Diaz to not win a set at minus 132. On FanDuel, couple reasons I'm going to take this. Uh, first reason, Halas is the better hardcore player. Second reason, Acosta Diaz has not played any tennis for a while. He got injured in his last match back on Jan- on uh, July 21st, which means he has not played tennis for a full month. And here's a really, really fun little stat here. Acosta Diaz made the top 100 because he was doing very well on clay challenger events. However, he has not played a single hardcore match since the Australian Open. So it's been roughly seven and a half months since he's played a hard court match. Have fun. That's all I'm saying. He's a clay court specialist who's coming off an injury. I think that there's a lot of rust and a lot of just underwhelming play that's in store for him. And Hallis has not played much tennis on hard court either, but he has played at least one match recently as he ended up losing to Elias in a straight set 7-5-7-5. In his last match, but that was his first hardcore match since Wimbledon. The point is, Hallis is the better hardcore player. He's the more talented player in general, and he's against the clay court specialist who has not played on hardcore in basically half the year. So I'm going with Hallis to win in straight sets here at around minus 132. Acosta Diaz maybe has moments because he is a solid player in general on clay, but with the injury that he's coming back from and the transition to a surface he has not played on in a long time. Hallis should, keyword should, win this in straight sets. That's going to be my lock. And for my dog, I am going to go to a matchup between Fuksovics and Zhang. And for this one, I am going to go with the over two and a half sets at plus 130. I've mentioned it uh, before, uh, but I'll say it again. If you ever see a match that you think can go either way and you really feel like it's a coin flip, you might want to consider taking the over. And I feel like this is a pretty good summary of this match. Now, Zhang is the underdog. He's around plus 132, and Fuksovic is around minus 152. Both players on hardcourt, though, have talent, and both players have some firepower. You might see, once again, a very fun match break out where both players have moments. Now, Zhang went to three sets against Avashka. Avashka's had a bit of a down year, but Avashka was a former champion here, so beating him early is an impressive showing. But Fuksovic is a consistent player, who's solid. The only thing keeping Fuksovics, in my opinion, out of like the top 40 are injuries because he gets hurt all the time. But of course, with overs for sets, if he gets injured and withdraws or retires, then it gets voided. But you're looking at his ranking. He's 58th Fuksovics. 
he seems to upset players all the time in general. And for example, he did win a set off of Medvedev in Wimbledon. So when he's on, when he's in form, he's a solid player. But I do think when you're looking at Fuksovics and his talent, I can't really deny that he's definitely going to be a tough matchup for Zhang. And I think that Zhang's firepower can definitely keep Fuksovics off balance. But as a result, I see each player having a moment or at least a set where they outplay their opposition and you probably go three. They faced off one time on hard court last year, faced off in Naples, and Zhang did win in straight sets. However, it was 6-4, 7-6. So it was 10-8 in the breaker. So it could have gone either way. Vuksovics actually did have four separate set points in that tiebreaker as he led 6-4 and then had another set point at 7-6 and 8-7. So four I had five set points, actually, including the 6-5 return game where he had an advantage for set point. So Fuksovics had five chances to win a set uh, in the last, the only head-to-head meeting against Zhang. And I think that's a pretty good summary of how close these players are to each other. Give me a, a bit of a marathon here. Give me the over two and a half at plus 130. So once again, the lock and up picks for the show. The lock's going to be on a Costa Diaz to not win a set at minus 132 against Hallis. And my dog will be Zhang and Fuksovic over two and a half sets at plus 130. That's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Tennis Gambling Podcast. A reminder of what I said in the last episode. We will not be doing an episode for every round of Winston-Salem. So this will be the final episode that we have before the semifinals in Winston-Salem. Then we'll be back to go through some of those matches. I will admit, though, I will be out of town once again. Over the weekend, I am having a family get-together. So I'm going to try to get some episodes out. If not, keep an eye out for my Twitter, at Reichel Radio. I will tweet out if I'm unable to record anything, but I'm going to do my best to get some episodes out over the weekend. But that's going to wrap it up. Until next time, good luck to all of you and all of your bets. Bye, everyone.